This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Philosophy, a podcast channel with New Books Network. I'm Carrie Figdor, Professor of Philosophy at the University of Iowa. I'm co-host of the channel, along with Robert Talese, Sarah Tyson, and Malcolm Keating. Together, we bring you conversations with philosophers about their new books in a wide range of areas of contemporary philosophical inquiry. Today's interview is with Oana Sherman, lecturer in philosophy at the University of Berkeley. Bucharest. Her new book, After Thomas Kuhn, The Structure of Aesthetic Revolutions, is just out from De Gruyter. Thomas Kuhn's The Structure of Scientific Revolutions revolutionized the way philosophers and historians of science thought about science, scientific progress, and the nature of scientific knowledge. But Kuhn himself also considered later on how his framework might apply to art. In her new book, Sherban elaborates on the suggestions and proposals of Kuhn and others to develop a new view of aesthetic and artistic progress and change based in Kuhn's work. Sherban adds the key concept of aesthetic validity to the Kuhnian analysis as central to the concept of an aesthetic revolution. The dominance of a particular aesthetic paradigm depends on broadly political factors and our responses to particular ideological questions, such as What is the relation between humans and God? Artistic revolutions, in contrast, are stylistic expressions of these ideological frames such that the norms, values, and styles in art can be transgressive without being Kuhnian revolutions. This is an intriguing book which extends the Kuhnian framework into a non-canonical area. I hope you enjoy the podcast. Hello, Oana Sherban. Welcome to New Books in Philosophy. Hello. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, this is a very interesting and, and intriguing book. Um, I personally found it, uh, you know, very kind of mind-stretching because I am very familiar with Thomas Kuhn and the structure of scientific revolutions, but I had not thought about uh, any possible analogies or extensions uh, to the realm of aesthetics, which, you know, apparently you and, you know, a good number of other people who I'm also not aware of have already 
um, considered. So I, I guess from my perspective, one of the one of the really interesting thing was to understand, you know, how closely is, is this analogy? Is it just you know a, a general uh, a, a Kuhnian, or is are the you know parallels sort of pretty exact? Um, and then also to know your own sort of take on the relationship between the structure of scientific and then artistic and aesthetic uh, revolution. So I found this to be a really, really interesting um, uh, book that that introduced me to a whole different way of thinking about uh, about Kuhn's work. Um, so I, I thank you for that. Um, before we get to the before we get to the book itself, I do want to uh, uh, give us a bit of information about about you. I mean, how you became a philosopher, and then and how this book came about. Well, um, the idea of becoming a philosopher was uh, flourishing in my mind quite late. I must say, uh, I've always known that I would like to be a teacher, and now that you're challenging me, if I think twice. I think 15 years ago, I was still tackling different passions. So if you have said to me, you're going to be a professor of philosophy, I would have said, mm, it might be, but I'm not sure. Uh, the truth is that <clears throat> I've chosen philosophy in a very puzzled circumstance. So I grew up in a very spiritual family with uh, many theologians around. And um, I think it was in the... 10 or 11 grade uh, when I was preparing for medicine. Uh, that was what my parents wished for me. Uh, but was quite unsure that I could perform surgery, given the fact that I'm a very empathic and merciful person. So at that time, it happened to me to attend the National Olympiads in Logic. And I came back from there with a grade of 9.5 out of 10. And I said to myself, hmm, I might do something in this uh, in this field. So I asked myself what domain would empower me to help individuals to develop both their bodies and souls. And at that time, philosophy came to me as a very, let's say, I don't know, natural response, mitigating between theology and medicine. So this is how I got at the Faculty of Philosophy. Um, I was passionate at that time about logics, but I have to say this always helped me to be critical or attentive with my arguments that I invest in my teaching or writing. But in time, I realized that I'm not that kind of uh, girl that would embrace uh, the analytical part of philosophy. So it seemed to me that philosophy of culture is more appropriate for my capacities and taste. Uh, and then something happened. I began to teach modern philosophy and aesthetics. Um, and I must say that unlike other colleagues of mine that at the beginning of their career teach this and that, many, many disciplines. I had only these two, and I think that was awesome. That was, in fact, my great opportunity because speaking about this kind of relationship between aesthetics and modern philosophy, and we're going to discuss also about Kuhn that you wouldn't mention in the field of aesthetics and uh, aesthetics as a whole. I think that no one can teach aesthetics quite good if he or she doesn't know very well modern philosophy. So that was the jackpot of my career. Now, how did I came to this book? Um, well, I, I'm still wondering myself <laughs> why. Uh, that's a challenge. I have to confess you something. Um, 
about 10 years, uh, I have worked exclusively when it came about aesthetics on a very narrow field, and it is called artistic capitalism. Somehow it was coined by Gilles Lipovetsky and Jean Serrois, so it was very French, so to say. Um, and uh, in fact, I have devoted myself to analyze the culture of consumption, the consequences of the Frankfurt School on aesthetics. Uh, and I have even translated into Romanian the works of Lipovetsky. So <clears throat> how should I put it in order to be elegant and in the same time honest? Um, I, I got intoxicated by these theories. So when you work too much time on a topic, you need some fresh air. Uh, so I wanted a change of paradigm, as Kuhn would say. Um, I have understood in this decade that the relationship between art and aesthetics is quite blurry. Uh, and aesthetics is no longer conceived as Hegel used to do it, you know, as a domain of, I don't know, prescribing cultural ideologies that inspire artistic representations. So it was very... Um, um, unsatisfying for me to read articles, studies, or to hear my students uh, discussing uh, a century of avant-garde without tackling quite well aesthetic concepts, remaining only to this idea that art is something very socially engaged, very revolutionary, very energical, but uh, quite vulnerable when it comes about ideas and ideologies. Um, so... Um, of course, that Dada, surrealism, futurism, they are all considered revolutions. They are all pleading to democratize arts, liberating individuals from, I don't know, traditions, values, canonic norms. They all are forms of transgression. But uh, what struck me is the fact that they all are based on manifestos, on cultural programs, on documents, very sharp in a sense of an ideology. So... I became interested in explaining this kind of relationship between aesthetics and art in this context. And it happened to reach a text of Thomas Kuhn, which is less known and inspired the idea of my book. Uh, it's called Comment on the Relationship Between Science and Art. And that was the moment when uh, the idea of this book sparked in my mind. Um, it was another type of Kuhn, so to say. So um, he was somehow uh, discussing the possibility to implement the structure of scientific revolutions into the field of art to commute it. Uh, but he said that it's not something that he might exhaust within a conference or during a lecture. It's some food for thoughts for people that are going to come over decades and will try to reflect more on his theories and will try to strengthen the dialogue between science and art. So we'll know that Kuhn is not canonic in the field of aesthetics and art. And um, it seems that he had many friends, in fact, uh, with different aestheticians, many art historians um, that offer him some food for thought to reflect on this kind of possibility to address styles from art in terms of paradigms from science. Um, so I wondered um, how could we explain dominant paradigms in art? And I wondered if they can be answers to particular social problems. So I've seen that the mechanism is the same with what happens in scientific revolutions. When older paradigms are substituted by newer ones, it happens for two reasons, either because 
they can no longer offer a satisfying response or because some new problems appeared and former dominant paradigms are somehow, let's say, old-fashioned. So that was the case of um, Dada, for example. Uh, Art was too conceptual, uh, too rational, and reactions were less socially engaged. So Tristan Sara said, okay, let's drop it. Let's go over the void. Let's address the nothingness. Let's open, have an open word declared to logics. So this is how I came to, to write this book. I think that... Um, there are three major reasons for which uh, I started this project a couple of years ago. Uh, first, because I always wanted to explain the nature of progress in art. Um, I had a couple of meetings with Anthony Julius at a certain time that wrote the book on transgressions in art. Uh, and uh, it happened to me to, to wonder whether or not the notion of progress is quite suitable in art, especially nowadays. At the moment when we talk, there is a banana duct taped that it's on a wall and is worthy to be uh, commercialized for $120,000. So uh, I was wondering, is this okay? Uh, Is this progress? Uh, Is contemporary art uh, still a domain that reflects on the possibility to have and achieve progress in art? So that was the first challenge. And then, um, of course, that um, it happened, this kind of uh, happy coincidence, so to say. So last year, we celebrated 60 years since the publication of Kuhn's bestseller, The Structure of Scientific Revolutions. Um, And I think that the best way to uh, have a a good philosophical anniversary, so to say, is to go back to someone's ideas and to see if you can implement them in other fields. And even the fact that it was Kuhn's own idea to try to test the structure of scientific revolutions in art, I said, okay, so it wouldn't be an illegitimate step. I should do it. Um, And uh, also because, um, um, and that would be a sort of, let's say, a third uh, reason for which I wrote this. Um, Unlike Kuhn, I'm interested not solely on how paradigms resist in their position of dominance. I'm also interested for how long. And uh, uh, this is why I wrote this um, book, uh, adding to Thomas Kuhn's theory, a new ingredient that he never had, and somehow I spoiled it and uh, called it a theory of aesthetic validity um, that somehow says um, that the dominance of a paradigm is determined by the role of political factors in conserving or undermining the dominance of an artistic paradigm. So um, putting all these things into a nutshell, that was what I had in mind when I started to wrote this book. Um, it took me uh, about four years. Um, and when I ended, I said, okay, um, that's a project that it's worth it to, to try to submit for publication. And mm-hmm. this is how you, you found mm-hmm. my book. Some, very, very some- good. Yeah. Um, well, there's a, there's a lot there. Let me, let's, um, let's, let's go back to the basic question of, well, there, I do want to get to the the question of progress because that's that's critical. Um, uh, but but let's get to the the basics of a Kuhnian, you know, the scientific revolution. You mentioned the word transgression twice, and and so one of the things that 
that that uh, that would be helpful to clarify is um, it, in art we t- talk a lot about transgressions and and you know changes and you know we we use the word revolution you know you mentioned dada and you might you know conceptual art and um uh, so, so there is a loose sense of a word revolution in the sense of, you know, this style is revolutionary or something, you know, uh, you know, Cezanne was revolutionary in this particular way and things like that. Um, but that's a much looser sense than, you know, Kuhn's very particular sense of, you know, what is, you know, a paradigm as a, as a theory with a set of methods and rules for adjudicating between, you know, controversies, you know, and then you produce, you know, every paradigm has its anomalies, which are, you know, puzzles that can't be solved within the paradigm. And there's also a lot of normal science that goes on within, you know, each, you know, under each paradigm with basics not questioned. And there was one paradigm at the time, at a time, uh, which he was criticized about that, but there was one at a time, you had the accumulation of anomalies, uh, you had a period of crisis, and, you know, and then when a new paradigm comes along, uh, you know, scientists, you know, largely will, you know, kind of adopt the new paradigm, and, and then you start doing new normal science. Now that's that's a very you know there's a lot of pieces to that particular picture, but it seems to involve a lot more things than just being transgressive or revolutionary, in the sense that, it, you know, people talking about you know Cezanne being revolutionary or you know or Dada or um, uh, you know Duchamp or any of these people being you know revolutionary. Can you flesh out a bit exactly how some of the key elements of Kuhn's picture, like the idea of accumulating anomalies, the idea of normal science, um, you know, and the idea of, of um, uh, well, you know, it's hard to get, you know, truth becomes a little bit more complicated to talk about, but the idea that you are, you know, trying to, uh, you know, generate knowledge about the world, right? And that's not a, well, whether that's a goal of art or not is, is part of the controversy. But can you, can you flesh out this idea of a revolution in Kuhn's sense in the art world that is more than just it's revolutionary, it's transgressive or something like that? Yeah. Well, uh, here I think we should have a distinction. First of all, transgression might seem at the first glimpse quite a a weak concept. So uh, in the history of arts and aesthetics, it's used to depict changes of paradigm uh, that can be classified in three different manners. So you have transgressions by form, such as, I don't know, the Blue Boy of Gainsborough, for example, is one of the most common uh, examples that we met in the history of art. So blue was never used for the, the, the character of a, a painting. It was used only for the background. So that was a norm that has been somehow undermined. 
then you have transgressions by moral standards, meaning that you tend to address, I don't know, feminist topics, political topics that are somehow quite sensitive. And then you have um, what we would call uh, a transgression by resistance to politics or by political engagement. So this kind of taxonomy belongs to Anthony Julius. And of course that he says, we see that each time in the history of art, something changed. A norm, a value, a style has been undermined. My question was, is that enough in order to achieve a revolution? And my answer is no. And this is why I need to uh, explain, as you said a little bit better, the idea of uh, artistic revolution, so to say. Um, and here is where Kuhn seems to be quite helpful, because my intention was to explain that um, paradigms and masterpieces can be understood as rational models in science, respectively, in arts. So to be more clear, um, multiple artworks can equally express a paradigm. But the climax of a paradigm is always a masterpiece. Um, now, if uh, we are going just to recall a few names from the Renaissance, I think that the most common would be Da Vinci, uh, Michelangelo. And the question is why? Because there was a bunch of boys that were painting more or less in the same style, but we recall as exceptions only some of them. So that might be a problem. Um, so we can easily observe that works of art fulfill simultaneously the functions of means to an end and that of an end by itself. Um, and that's a difference because scientific problems are solely means to an end. That's uh, one tension that at the first glimpse might tell us don't uh, make this kind of overlapping between the structure of aesthetic revolutions and that of scientific revolutions. Um, then we have, as you mentioned, the problem of styles. So let's take, I don't know, Caravaggio, for example. Um, he's the recognition of the rules of painting in his work, which he himself largely created. So he uh, authorship his own style. Um, but somehow... Um, he was an anomaly. He was something quite different from the rest of uh, the artistic instances that were part from the same artistic paradigm. So the problem is, how can you distinguish between normal art and what we might call implementing Kuhn's term, anomalies in art? So I think that uh, if we would have to draw the parallel between normal science and normal art, <coughs> it, um, <clears throat> it must function uh, as a parallel that supports this kind of commutability of scientific revolutions to artistic revolutions. So in my view, this relationship stands because even scientific paradigms are uh, pragmatically coexistent and not incommensurable, just as paradigms are uh, in art, um, you have an ideal paradigm and you have some particular problems. And um, you always have this in science and you always have this in art. You have, for example, in the history of art, classicized conceptual innovators. You have old masters, Van Eyck, uh, um, Raphael Caravaggio, Vermeer, whatever. And you have experimental innovators that are responsible for anomalies, such as Leonardo, such as Michelangelo, uh, Tizian, Velasquez, Rembrandt. So Raphael Stanza was an anomaly. It was a transgression when it appeared because it became classicized later on. And so happened with Velasquez. It was not their style that became exhausted. 
it was the paradigm of classical art that, after consuming all its possibilities of innovation, was forced to abdicate mimetism, naturalism, was no longer fashionable. So uh, I think this is what uh, is important in implementing Kuhn's method in the history of art, because you tend to understand that a paradigm is not reducible to a particular masterpiece, but that whenever you have a masterpiece, it seems that a climax of a certain paradigm has been reached. Um, That's on one hand. Um, On the other hand, of course, that um, the major problem still remains uh, the idea of, uh, let's say, achieving progress. Um, And I think this is the most sensitive part because revolutions, transgressions, they should all indicate a progress. Um, From, uh, let's say, uh, Las Meninas painted by Velázquez to the same painting but that of the Picassos, Meninas. Um, do we have a progress? Yes or no? Is that a change of paradigm? Yes or no? So that's a challenge. And in my opinion, I think that um, at some point we resent in the history of art many artistic gestures being offensive, being against art, not being art, being against the idea of progress. We felt it as a regress. Uh, so uh, art has never been an easily predictable domain. And those who are very committed to uh, Kuhn's uh, theories know that in order to do this kind of experiment, to adapt his theory to the field of history of art, you have to answer to the following question. Is art a predictable domain? Yes or no? Um, the problem is that not even in science, uh, you, you cannot control fully the idea of prediction. So um, I think that um, it's important to work with Kuhn at least until the moment when the history of art proclaims Hegel's end of our thesis, meaning that all the necessary paradigms happened in their succession, answering to different problems of our mankind, and then something happened. All the possible forms have been exhausted, and then contemporary art appeared, which was more socially and politically engaged and more immune to formal standards. So art had not only the power to register human progress as a whole, Uh, but also the capacity to provide the means for a new experience of the historical time that we have lived. Uh, We have this kind of quarrel of the ancients and the moderns. Uh, It was used to say that, I don't know, ancients invented and discovered a number of things because they were better, uh, but also because they lived earlier. So I think that's the challenge when you try to address the, the matter of the revolution in the history of art. The main problem is that uh, the quarrel in itself is often conceived as a form of progress and sometimes uh, is including the premise that ancients are more conservative while moderns are generally progressive and this is why progress is more, let's say, appropriate for our modern times. And I think that we still struggle between good and bad art and we differentiate them by the capacity of an artwork to express a certain form of progress. Um, we, we recall Michelangelo, we recall Da Vinci, we recall Raphael, uh, but uh, we have no proper name for any other rivalries that they had during that time. Why? Because they had no innovation, no stanza, no sfumato, no element that might 
create a difference between their own works and the works of those kind of titans. So uh, uh, when the Sistine Chapel is shown to you, you are delivered a Michelangelo, whereas you are uh, sick, as I used to be in the last days. I had penicillin, so I didn't have Fleming's discovery. And my question is why? Uh, in both cases, progress in science and in arts is evoked through uh, authorship, uh, through uh, a quantifiable, let's say, shift from one paradigm in, to another. Uh, well, I, I, I mean, so there seems to be like two different, at least two different notions of progress here. So, um, you know, again, kind of going back to, you know, you know, the invention of perspective or, or sfumato, as you mentioned, um, um, you know, I was, I was, what I was thinking was, you know, we invented, uh, you know, biologists invented, you know, CRISPR for, you know, editing genes, or we, um, adapted MRI machines so that we could do functional magnetic resonance imaging. And, you know, these are new techniques, you know, new, new tools and techniques, um, that, you know, again, in a sense of revolutionary, you know, they allow us to peep at, you know, look at brains in ways that we could never do before, or they enable us to, you know, create organisms that, that otherwise would never have come about. Um, but it's all within like normal science of, you know, in biology or neuroscience and, and the, the invention of sfumato or, or three-point perspective, um, that is a, a kind of, you know, that's a, an improvement in certain ways. Um, but I, I'm, I'm not sure, you know, again, I would have to understand what it, what exact, what is it that art is progressing towards that these things are just, are, are more than, great new techniques, but they're not like giving us a closer look at, you know, whatever the end of art might be. Well, that's something quite sensitive because at the first glimpse, um, you might think that those technical innovations answer to a very pragmatical question, uh, how should we paint better? And that's not the question. Uh, that's why I felt the necessity to uh, add this distinction between aesthetic revolutions and artistic revolutions inspired by Kuhn. Uh, so uh, my idea is the following one. Uh, first, you have a question that is socially framed. For example, what is the relationship between uh, human being and God? And that's the main question that in its own way inspired Renaissance. And you have different manners of answering to that that are supported by different artistic styles. Some of them uh, take, let's say, this kind of metaphysical discourse closer to mimetism because it was this kind of idea that those painters that were mimetical were quite good at understanding God's natural laws. And that's why you call genius Da Vinci or Raphael because they go quite close 
to the idea of natural laws that only God used to know and depict them into, into their masterpieces. Whereas in the modern time, the question is not what's the relationship between human being and God slowly, but what's the responsibility of the human being in the name of his reason to, to do things or to create things without depending on relying exclusively on God's natural laws. So that's why you have another style of painting that somehow recalls that subjectivism and individualism are higher values than they used to be back in Renaissance. So those are questions that are aesthetically challenged. And I think that first you have this kind of background, this kind of idea, and then you have styles that reply and try to to express different answers to that kind of question. So um, we all know the the recipe prescribed by Thomas Kuhn. You have a problem and you have a paradigm trying to solve the problem. And the paradigm will resist uh, as long as you have a suitable response or as long as another paradigm uh, will try to raise up by, uh, I don't know, uh, pushing in front some other important questions. And I think the same happened in art, but uh, it was not as in science. Science puts the questions, science advances the answers. I think that here aesthetics is the field in which the questions are addressed and are ideologically framed and socially engaged, and art tries to react to those social and ideological constructs. So the structure of aesthetic revolutions is the the, the second title, let's say, of my book, because uh, that was something that Thomas Kuhn had not into his view. So he did not make the distinction between art and aesthetics. If you take a closer look to his his, um, lectures, to his uh, writings, uh, sometimes he overlaps them. Because he's not interested, in fact, in what happens in the history of art in a particular uh, decade. And he's not interested in what happened into the field of aesthetics as a whole. When you read the the structure of scientific revolutions, um, you see that Kuhn uses the terms aesthetics for a few times, um, and not in the sense that we use it in philosophical aesthetics nowadays. So he says that we can aestheticize a scientific discourse to make it more elegant, more popular, more accessible. Um, At a certain point, I think he discusses some aesthetic virtues of science, accuracy, simplicity, but that's all. Well, in comment on the relationship between science and art, um, one took art a little bit more seriously uh, and uh, advanced some nuances that make art and science different, um, but he draw no distinctions between art and aesthetics. And I think that was the vulnerable part in this kind of experiment of implementing the structure of scientific revolutions into art, because art by itself cannot create revolutions. She, uh, it, sorry, it needs aesthetics uh, to, to challenge the problem of a paradigm. So works of art express a fulfilled purpose. Um, they all reflect a specific end. I don't know. Someone commissioned Mona Lisa and Da Vinci uh, began to, to draw it. Okay. Um, we don't have the same attitude in science. In science, scientific products are concrete consequences of research and are subjected to constant interventions. In science, only the final product counts. Uh, in arts, we are interested in all the steps that led to the construction of an artwork. We are interested to see if Da Vinci somehow overlapped a self-portrait over the portrait of Mona Lisa. 
So science and arts relate very differently in the matter of ants. And Kuhn saw that. Uh, he also says that in arts, aesthetics is itself the goal of the work. And here is where I protest. Um, in the sciences, uh, it is at best, uh, again, a tool system, a criterion of choice between theories, uh, which are in other respects comparable. Um, so in my book, um, I strongly suggest that if we accept Thomas Kuhn's hypothesis that aesthetics is the finality assumed by the realm of arts, um, then the implication of such statement manifests uh, at the level of distinguishing aesthetic revolutions from artistic ones. Uh, and on this kind of distinction, I really insisted on, because the former will be understood as ends of the latter. That was my problem. Um, I also had another problem with, um, with uh, reading uh, Kuhn's idea at that time. Uh, a paradigm shift uh, crosses an ideological process. And I think that artistic expression uh, is merely a form of representation that uh, experiences the canons imposed by new dominant paradigms. So that would be um, the, the truth and the right path to target an artistic revolution. Uh, we should not go uh, into that kind of mistake. We, we should not do the mistake of overlapping styles and paradigms. Uh, because if you do that, then you'll say, okay, so Da Vinci has a style, Rembrandt has a style, Lali has a style. So the history of art is the history of styles. Uh, they are um, not incommensurable. So what's the problem? <laughs> and uh, uh, I think uh, that's the challenge. Uh, if you do this kind of overlap, you might miss the whole idea of what an aesthetic revolution means. Right. Um, this episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Sax.com. Um, so let me, you know, I'm sure you're probably going this direction anyway, but um, so you mentioned uh, at the beginning um, uh, the idea of uh, aesthetic validity, and that's a key concept uh, in your in your picture. Um, um, so maybe, you know, you, you go, go into explaining explaining the concept of aesthetic validity and then how that plays a role in you know, distinguishing and then relating aesthetic revolutions from artistic revolutions. So Kuhn never made a proper distinction between aesthetic and artistic properties or revolutions. And I said that was the problem. Um, into a sentence, let's say, artistic revolutions are considered expressions and effects of aesthetic revolutions, and aesthetic revolutions are ideologically framed. They lie on paradigms, as corpse of knowledge, as puzzles of answers to problems that require certain concepts, certain values, uh, certain beliefs. Artistic revolutions are expressively framed, uh, stylistically framed. They lie on styles as uh, formal alterations required by this change of mentalities and this change of lifestyles. When I conceive the theory of aesthetic validity, 
uh, I had in mind the fact that the political factor amends ideologies, not styles. It happened, for example, that, um, I don't know, the appetite for speed that futurists had to coincide with the fascist obsession for industry, for technology. Well, it was a coincidence. But uh, the technique of futurists, aeropitura, was a very cultural reaction. It was very stylistic and it meant an artistic expression for uh, the dynamics uh, ideologically framed by the convictions of the need of war at that time. So I was wondering um, how should I frame uh, aesthetic validity and how aesthetic validity appeared. So the theory of aesthetic validity is an answer to the question how long a paradigm resists in the field of aesthetics and arts. It's not my question. Uh, It's a question to which many other scholars tried to answer. I uh, called a few of them in my book, Hofstadter, Kline, Habermas, and they all... <clears throat> try to answer to this idea how long uh, a paradigm will last. Um, so I think that in order to answer to this question, we have to tackle um, two standards, uh, two components that um, uh, determine aesthetic validity. One is rightness and the other one is truthfulness. Uh, so an ideal of beauty must be expressed by a paradigm, both in terms of material validity meaning that um, you have uh, a representation as of a very harmonious reality through an artwork, and then you have spiritual validity, meaning uh, representing that kind of ideal beauty in a very infinite manner through an artwork. So that was, for example, Clinet's uh, method. Clinet uh, stated that scientific revolutions are cumulative, and this is why it's very hard to understand uh, the validity of a paradigm because sometimes you lose uh, the idea of progress or novelty. You recall in science only the last final revolutionary product from a series of innovations. Uh, whereas in art, revolutions are very contingent, very non-cumulative, and their effects are partial. Um, so Kline upgraded Thomas Kuhn's theory, and he distinguished um, between normal and revolutionary practices, uh, understood that there is aesthetic validity, it is ideologically framed, and it is materially and formally grounded. Um, however, um, I must say that um, uh, when I formalized Kline's theory in order to try to make my own, um, I saw that it was quite a challenge because uh, Kline tried to recover Thomas Kuhn, um, but he introduced a new term, norms of durability. He says that, in fact, society, by its own problems, uh, creates a framework for how long a paradigm will last. Uh, And he equally discusses norms of variability. Uh, A paradigm uh, should not be dropped. It could be modified, so you could remain to the same aspect. But all these attempts uh, lack political ingredients. So that was my contribution. And now to to answer to your question. Um, If we take an attentive look to the century of avant-garde, we have them from the 1850s until the 1960s. Uh, we'll see that um, aesthetic revolutions produced a new idea of political revolution. 
Um, Dada, for example, was valid as long as the guys from the Cabaret Voltaire wanted to. When the movement was too popular, I recall they organized the performance, a funeral of Dada, <laughs> to be sure that their ideology was no longer valid because Dada was becoming Dadaism. And that was bad. They they didn't want to be contaminated by ideology. Surrealism. Well, in my opinion, surrealism was valid because it was endorsed either by an anarchic branch or by a communist one. We all know what happened with Breton, with Trotsky, with uh, um, the Mexican communism that somehow contaminated art, Frida Kahlo, for example. Um, and then we have futurism, which was valid only as long as it satisfied fascist ideals. So my argument is that aesthetic validity is composed by rightness and truthfulness, but they have other meanings. So I say that rightness prescribes standards for how the historically uh, aesthetic, uh, how can we track uh, aesthetic paradigms in history as corpse of knowledge that answer to a particular problem, which is always ideologically framed. And truthfulness is a historical corrective interpretation of the contingency between political practices and artistic practices. So at the end of the day, when we call aesthetic validity, we call for the authority of a revolutionary paradigm whose artistic means for the transformation of life and society are politically engaged, committed, or inspiring. So that's why I think that um, this kind of theory works to explain very well the avant-garde, because even though they plead in their own manner for liberating different practices from former traditions, in fact, they were all at the extremes of the left or the right wing of the political specter. Nowadays, we have contemporary art, which is, um, let's say, more democratic. And most probably, this is why we don't feel the necessity to wonder ourselves uh, how much uh, will last this kind of hysterical attitudes of, I don't know, putting bananas on walls. Uh, We don't care. Uh, It's something that came and it's something that will go. Uh, But it was very important back in time to know what will be the consequences of Duchamp's Mona Lisa when he took Da Vinci's masterpiece, added a mustache, a bad and nasty message, and said, okay, that's the manner in which I cherish traditions, but I challenge you to think what you have done to industry and mass consumption. So I think that's why we need a theory of aesthetic validity, because I think that art is not immune to politics. And that's something that Thomas Kuhn, of course, was not interested in. But I think that nowadays, when we work on this field, we have to we have to answer to this question. Uh, are we fully excused by political affairs in aesthetics and art or not? In rest, the mechanism, in my opinion, is the same. The paradigm lasts as long as uh, it, res- it responds to a problem. So when communism was uh, removed or when fascism was removed, we see that surrealism and futurism had no longer a chance, neither in Spain, neither in France, neither in Italy. So the question is why? The problem is that the political regime has changed and art created new forms of answering to new ideological problems. So let me, um, do, do you think we're facing a, a, a new ideological problem now? Um, 
and possibly in a, in a crisis period. Uh, I, I'm thinking of, you know, all the, the climate change and, you know, all the, the growing sorts of tensions, um, you know, that are, that are occurring, you know, at the ideological, you might, as you put it, you know, political level. Um, how do you see where we are right now in terms of the this Cunium perspective on on art and aesthetics? I should say, yeah. Um, I think that when it comes about contemporary art, uh, that's the moment when uh, you could leave Thomas Kuhn aside. Uh, because I think that this idea of implementing the structure of scientific revolutions into art is uh, doable, but only by the beginning of contemporary art. So it works to explain the quarrel between ancients and moderns. It works to explain uh, different phases of the Renaissance, of the modern art, but that's all. Nowadays, um, as I've said previously, we live in very democratic times, or at least part of us, because we see that uh, in some parts of Europe at the moment when we speak, there are many artists trying to create different performances in order to criticize uh, the problem of war or, I don't know, the problem of global warming, so on and so forth. So art nowadays is very socially engaged. The problem is that... Um, I think um, the, the ideological factor no longer comes from or within the, the, the community of artists or aestheticians. It comes from outside. I mean, society imposes uh, this kind of trends and art became not a tool to create revolutions or changes of paradigm, but a way uh, to resist to different forms of revolutions that are not cultural that are very political. Um, that's one way uh, to, to discuss the problem. Uh, I also believe that um, nowadays uh, we face a sort of paradox that I'm some, somehow I'm astonished that people do not discuss it as it is. We live in the age of conceptual art, isn't it? Um, but we know that uh, when Dada appeared, they all said it's too much concept. We would like to avoid that. And nowadays, when you go into a museum and you see a piece of conceptual art, if you don't have the curatorial text, if you don't have the concept, you're lost. You don't know how to react to a, to a piece of art. So that's a paradox. Contemporary art is the narrative of a form of art that wanted to avoid concepts, but became quite dependent on it. And that's a paradox. Uh, how can you go over? Um, I think that contemporary art has its own manner of being very trendy, of being very transgressive and being very socially engaged. Uh, I think that nowadays its uh, major concern is to address this kind of political correctness. Uh, that's not bad, but the problem is that it seems uh, uh, to have no way back. And I think Hegel was right. Uh, and in his own manner, Kuhn was right. Um, you have a, a sort of, let's say, dialectical representation of the history of art. So how many opportunities you might have in terms of style? You either go back in time 
or remain with what is served today in museums, in galleries, and in many unconventional places to expose artworks. Uh, so the difference between science and art is that in science, if you would represent progress, you would have a very uh, linear representation, whereas in art, uh, you have a dialectical representation. Something comes back always and always in different manners, in different forms. So that's what we are living today. I don't hope for uh, for a new Renaissance, and I don't hope for a new uh, Kandinsky or for a new uh, Caravaggio. Uh, but what I do know is the fact that um, what is important to learn nowadays from art is the manner to address questions. Um, and that used to be the responsibility of aesthetics. Uh, I'm very Hegelian because uh, I think Hegel was right in his lectures. Aesthetics um, is a field where um, you put questions about the ideal of beauty. Uh, art is a field where you put questions about the power of an artwork to express an ideal of beauty. The problem is that nowadays no one wants in the field of art the idea of beauty. And that's why aesthetics has been left aside. Uh, nowadays people just want to be shocked. That's the inheritance of avant-garde. We want to be challenged. We want to be thrilled. We want to be energized. Um, but we no longer seek a form of beauty. Uh, and I think this is uh, the moment when we have to reconsider the relationship between aesthetics and art, because it would be unfair to say that aesthetics is no longer valuable. And in the same time, it would be unfair to say that the history of art could evolve as uh, it used to be and uh, as it used to, to perform a certain dynamics without taking into account the aesthetical factor. So that's why I think that this whole narrative about uh, implementing Kuhn's theory into the field of aesthetics of art is more a sort of a tool that will force us to reconsider the relationship between aesthetics and art in the name of this kind of revolutionary potential that they both have. Hmm. So let me, um, I think we have time for like one, one question. Um, so uh, you also discuss the relationship between art and science, right? Um, and not just like art and aesthetics. Um, and you, you, you make, you remark that, you know, aesthetics itself is somehow a mediator between art and science. So uh, could you elaborate a bit on, on how you see aesthetics as mediating between those two, you know, otherwise, you know, thought to be quite disparate domains? <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, uh, I have to admit that uh, all the people that I know and work on aesthetics uh, tend to address this kind of question. So what's the future for, for this domain from now on? Uh, of course, that um, um, even though nowadays, I don't know, we have neuroaesthetics, for example, that tailors differently the interaction between science and art, and that's the best response that we have in these uh, terms. Um, I believe that in a very, I don't know, Kunian manner, science can help aesthetics and art reflecting on representations of progress and mechanism shifts, but also matters of popularity and mass reactions, uh, which in science have a certain echo, and I think that aesthetics and arts have something to learn from that. I would not say that uh, Kuhn's perspective will save arts from being decadent or aesthetics from being uh, incoherent. Uh, but I do believe that um, 
going at the heart of the paradigm shifts as revolutions uh, performed by new mentalities or forms of innovations will force us to understand that problems of our mankind have always been the same. We just offer different answers depending on certain historical times. Uh, from science, from science, we can learn that in the arts we have the chance of non-cumulative forms of progress, that paradigms can coexist as place for everyone. Uh, and uh, that's the chance for history to become more coherent because you don't have to choose between one another. You have just to see how this kind of coexistence of paradigm uh, can allow us to create new models of conviviality, of multiculturalism. Uh, and I think that's the chance that art has in science. You have to choose one paradigm or another. Um, in any revolutionary pattern, we will see that art can be a witness for our history, uh, but uh, it cannot explain it by itself. So aesthetics is the only one that can explain it. Um, what's uh, also important to, to understand from this kind of uh, exercise uh, is that um, from science and art uh, and from their clash, we have two terms that somehow colonize the history of mentalities nowadays, incommensurability and incomprehensibility. Um, so I think that uh, that's a plausible way to regain the differences between aesthetics and art. So we know that incommensurability emerges from formal language of artistic paradigms. Uh, and incomprehensibility emerges from the ideological frame of an aesthetic paradigm. Uh, but those used to be problems of science. So that's why I do believe that taking a look to what happened in science in terms of these two notions will help us mitigate better aesthetic conflicts and artistic differences. Mm -hmm. So let me, um, this just occurred to me. Um, it seems to me that your, your perspective is more perhaps Lakatosian than Kuhnian. Um, do you think that's right? Well, if you would uh, enlighten me from what... Um, so, you know, he, he kind of built on uh, Kuhn's work to, you know, offer a, a, the idea that, you know, there could be coexisting paradigms, not just one, and the idea that you could have degenerating research programs and progressive research programs and, you know... Particular, you know, theories or paradigms might uh, fade and and die for a while, but then they might be revived, you know, in you know decades later or something like that. And and so some of what you said makes me think um, your view is a bit closer to Lakatos, uh, who who is based, you know, who who is building on Kuhn, right? Um, but that you know, I, I don't know. I mean, you didn't. I didn't. I don't recall finding that in your in your book. But I just no, wondered. No. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and, and I'm going to tell you why because uh, I just tried to to follow the natural path. So taking Kuhn's hypothesis that this kind of implementation might be possible and tracking down exclusively those authors that really ask themselves what can you do with Thomas Kuhn in aesthetics or art, um, but. Uh, speaking about that, um, I think that Kuhn himself, uh, when he had this lecture on comment on the relationship between science and art, 
was in a period when he was considering, or at least, let's say, reconsidering the idea of accepting uh, the, the commensurability of paradigms in other domains than science. I think that was his challenge. Um, because he was saying that the, the major problem is that science and arts react differently to ends. Uh, okay, I can understand that. Uh, but in the same time, he said that in science, when you accomplish something, a task that responded to a particular end, you have to drop the other paradigms because progress is cumulative. And in arts, progress is not cumulative. Um, so um, I think that um, framing things like that, we reach to a point where Thomas Kuhn himself would have second thoughts on the idea of incommensurability uh, addressed to other domains than science. And I think that's why he has been so seduced of this idea that he left aside because it was not his major interest. But he was challenged by friends such as Hafner, who was an art historian, or many other voices that said, like Ackermann, uh, Thomas Kuhn has a point we might explain changes and revolutions in art by this kind of structure. At the end of the day, the story seems quite simple. We have a dominant paradigm and it will be overcome. Okay. Uh, but the real problem is that in order to have a paradigm exhausted, you need all its variations to be exhausted. And that's the problem with art. That's the problem with styles. Uh, and that's the problem with incommensurability. So, yes, I would say uh, you're right. From this standpoint, if uh, I would go outside the box of this very narrow discussion on how different scholars reacted to Kuhn's um, proposal, yeah, uh, I tend to adopt this kind of position. Uh, I did not include it just because I tried uh, to, to keep the red wire of only those guys who explicitly said, okay, we react to this kind of topic, to this kind of theme. But yeah, you're right from this standpoint. And I do believe that. Um, I, I'm very curious how this um, whole idea of artistic revolutions will evolve from now on. Um, because um, since the end of our thesis of Hegel and all the books that have been uh, written around the century of artistic avant-garde, um, there is still a gap, meaning uh, what's the next step in aesthetics or art. Uh, Neuroaesthetics is the most sympathetic with science, and of course it will have a different manner. But for classical aesthetics, for classical art, I think uh, this is still an, an open uh, box to to add things and to add pieces to this kind of problematic puzzle. Okay, well we're um, we're out of time uh, just about. But uh, last question: um, What is what are you working on now? I mean, what's uh, what's next for you in the short term? <coughs> well. <clears throat> Uh, currently, I just uh, end up a book on cultural capital and creative communication. Um, it's a different field uh, on which I've been working because I'm also a professor at the UNESCO chair. Um, and I try to um, give a replica to this kind of question, whether or not modernity is a unitary project, is Eurocentric, and is exclusively Western. So, so uh, it's mainly a book that stands between, let's say, 
Brodel, Baudrillard, Max Weber, guys that tried to identify the pedigree of modernity and to explain how the evolution of modernity was possible in different phases. And right after, I do want to take a little break from from this kind of cultural projects and to devote myself more to... Um, not to Thomas Kuhn's works, but to the necessity to reconsider the history of avant-garde's uh, from a very political standpoint. So what I will do next is uh, to continue this book by explaining how the political factor uh, determined different variations at the level of aesthetic validity uh, for each avant-garde. Uh, and uh, I'll try to explain a little bit uh, what happens in contemporary arts nowadays when this collapse of democracies is very visible, although uh, arts and different, uh, let's say, cultural paradigms advocate for democracy and for liberation, as we see what happens nowadays in Ukraine or Russia. So that would be very something very practical, um, and uh, that would be the short-term uh, project for the next year. Okay, very good. Well, um, I appreciate your taking the time to talk with us about about um, Kuhn and art and aesthetics. Um, it was my pleasure. It's a great conversation. Thank you very much. I'm glad. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you as well. You've been listening to an interview with Oana Sherban, lecturer in philosophy at the University of Bucharest. We've been talking about her new book, After Thomas Kuhn, The Structure of Aesthetic Revolutions, which is just out from De Gruyter. I'm Carrie Figdor. This is New Books in Philosophy. I hope you enjoyed the podcast, and thank you for listening.